Welcome. Thank you for taking some time out of your night to be here today. As someone once said that it takes two people to destroy you, an enemy to slander you behind your back, and a friend to tell you about it. I'm not sure if that's true or not, but Jesus' death was brought on by both his enemies and his friend. Uh, a friend who stabbed him in the back, who betrayed a long-standing relationship, and who sold him out. And then he was also betrayed by his enemies who led him to the cross. And tonight, what we're going to spend some time doing is thinking about that friend. That friend is one of the most well-known figures in all of the Bible, and he's a household name. I'm sure you would recognize the name Judas. And even though he's a well-known person, not much actually is known about him, especially when it comes to his background. Uh, What we do know is that his father's name was Simon and that his full name was Judas Iscariot. Uh, The first name Judas means praise Yahweh, and his last name Iscariot means man of Kerioth, which apparently is the place that he was from. That's all we know about him when he comes on the scene, but we find out that Judas was made one of Jesus' original 12 disciples. He was handpicked by Jesus And Jesus gave him not just busy work as a disciple, but a very important role. Judas was the treasurer of the team. And that was kind of odd because Judas' reputation was one of being a miser. Uh, He tended to hoard as much money as possible for himself and be cheap with everyone else, Jesus included. Not a good uh, thing for a treasurer, you wouldn't think. Uh, Worse than that is that he was a thief. There were rumors going around that he would pick uh, money off the top when no one was looking. And the story of Judas is really an amazing story. And tonight I want to think about two things that are just so strange and interesting and worth considering about the life of Jesus. And the first amazing thing is this, that Judas could spend all the time that he did with Jesus and still betray him. Judas was not just a part of the crowd. Judas was a disciple. He was a guy who had a backstage pass and was part of the inner circle of everything that Jesus was doing and all about. And of the 12 people in the history of the world who were closest to Jesus, Judas got to be one of those guys. What a privilege he had. I mean, over the course of the three years that they spent together... How many hours did Jesus get to spend? Did Judas get to spend with Jesus? I mean, these guys would have eaten together. Uh, they would travel together. They would sit around the campfire together. They, uh, he would have been able to hear so much of what Jesus taught. Uh, Judas would have seen Jesus heal people, uh, feed people when there was no food, walk on water when there was no boat. Judas would have seen Jesus raise people from the dead. And Judas had kind of a front row view of all of Jesus' strength and his bravery and his goodness and his fierceness and his compassion. Judas was there. And yet what Jesus said and what he did and who he was, it it didn't sink in for Judas. And that's true for many people today. 
But there are many people who come to churches and have been a part of churches all of their life, and yet the message that Jesus came to proclaim, grace, the mercy of God open to all because of the cross, it doesn't sink in. For other people, they say, if only God would appear right in front of me and answer directly to me face to face the questions that I have about life, or if he would give me some kind of a miracle that I could know that it was true, then I would believe. But how many questions did Judas have answered face to face? How many miracles did Judas see? It's easy to underestimate how hard the human heart can be towards God. And the life of Judas, it's like it screams that truth. It is amazing that Judas can spend so much time with Jesus and yet still betray him. But there's one thing about the life of Judas that's even more amazing than that. I think the most amazing thing is that Jesus picked him in the first place. Why would Jesus invest so much in a person that he knew was going to betray him? And Jesus did know. Uh, It was predicted long before Jesus was even born. There's a psalm, Psalm 41, verse 9, that says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his head against me. Excuse me, his heel against me. Sounds a lot like Judas. Uh, Early on in John chapter 6, when Jesus is just getting going with this team of disciples, he's sitting with his 12 disciples and he says, did I not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him, so why would he ever choose him? Well, the answer to that question is that Jesus' life had a very focused very specific purpose. Jesus came to die. Jesus came to die. It was what he knew he was going to do from the very beginning. In fact, before he was even born, an angel came and visited Mary, his mother, and Joseph, his stepfather. And the angel said to Joseph, you are going to have a son named Jesus who will save people from their sin. And when Jesus chose Judas... He knew this is going to be the guy who betrayed me. But this has to happen because I'm coming here to die. And it all went down like this. Judas makes a deal. He goes to the chief priests, the religious leaders of the time at the temple, and he says to them, what will you give to me if I turn over Jesus? Now, why does he do this? Why does he sell out Jesus? Why doesn't he just let things run their course and and see what happens and kind of watch from the sideline? Why does he need to be an active participator in this betrayal? Well, it's possible that he sold out for the money. Again, Judas was a very uh, greedy person, and the chief priests offer him 30 pieces of silver. Uh, It's hard to calculate how much that would have been worth in today's money, but people estimate that it might have been about $15,000 worth of silver uh, in, in today's wealth. Uh, It would have been, for that time, about half a year's wages. So it was a lot of money. It was a considerable sum of money that they offered to give to Judas. But I think it's a lot more likely that he sold Jesus out for another reason, self-protection. 
You see, at this time, Jesus was a wanted man. And eventually, Judas knew Jesus was going to be found and put to death. In fact, Jesus, who knew that he was coming to die, had even said to his disciples, I'm going to be taken against my will and killed. And I think Judas thought that if he could switch sides, if he could make friends with the priests, then the, 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 the uh, fate that Jesus was certain to face, along possibly with the other disciples, he might be able to escape. And so what Jesus was probably thinking, or Judas was probably thinking, was that his ship was about to sink, and it seemed to him to be a good time to jump to another boat. And so after three years of being with Jesus, after three years of Jesus investing in him, he disassociates himself from him and betrays Jesus to save himself. And the betrayal happens in a very unlikely setting, a beautiful place. Not at night, but on a quiet morning in a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, this garden was on the slope of a mountain. It was built right into the mountain across a valley from the city of Jerusalem. And it's a garden that's made up of olive trees. I think that the garden is still there. You can visit it to this day, and it's supposed to be very beautiful. Jesus apparently thought so because he went there all the time. He would escape to this garden just to be alone and to read his Bible, the Old Testament, and to pray. And he often took his disciples there, and they would sit among those olive trees, and he would teach them, and they would spend time together. Well, on this particular night, Jesus had been up all night praying and crying so intently that he, he actually sweat blood as he thought about what was lying just ahead of him, the cross. And he and 11 of his disciples, minus Judas, get up together in the morning, and, and there's Judas coming towards him with a great crowd of people who are armed with swords and with clubs. It is these, the chief priests and the elders are among this gang of people. And that's, that's where we find ourselves in the passage that Jennifer read for us this morning, Matthew 26, 46 through 50. If you could look there again. Here's what it tells us. It talks about the betrayer. We know him as Judas. Verse 40, 47, excuse me, 48. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And one of the most unbelievable parts of this little story is the fact that Judas would kiss Jesus. Okay, this is like the ultimate insult. I mean, a, a kiss is a sign of friendship and of trust and of love. And you have to ask yourself, is there not some other sign that Judas could have come up with? Is there any other sign that he could have done besides giving Jesus a kiss? And what this shows about Judas is this incredible duplicity that he seemed to have. It was like Judas was trying to keep a foot in both worlds to think of Jesus as being his friend, but at the same time to go along with what the, the leaders and the, 
the, the priests were trying to do at the time. I remember seeing a, a number of years ago an image that just stuck with me. It impacted me really powerfully. Uh, it was of a man uh, kind of split in half. And part of the man was reaching up to God as if he was worshiping him and praising him. And on his face, this half of his face was this expression of gratitude and wonder and awe and thanks. And on the other side of the image, the man had his hand up like a fist towards God. And he was yelling at God as if God was uh, some horrible person. And the, the, the feeling of just disobedience and hatred and those two things, I think the artist that, that tried to, to put this picture together uh, represented putting a foot in both worlds. Duplicity. And that was Judas. That was Judas. He was two people. He was trying to live two different lives. And the crowd takes Jesus into custody. And from there, he was led to his death. Uh, Jesus was abandoned by all of his friends. And Jesus was crucified by his enemies. But it is Judas Iscariot who will always be remembered as his betrayer. When we hear the name Judas, we judge. All of history has judged Judas. If he did anything good with his life, we don't remember it. We didn't even know about it. It is his failure his betrayal of the Son of God that we remember. Kind of a sad thing, isn't it? What happens next is even sadder. After Jesus is led away to be crucified, something happens. Judas snaps to it, and all of a sudden he realizes Jesus is condemned, and he feels this incredible guilt, the Bible teaches, and then an amazing thing happens. Judas actually changes his mind. And we don't know why he changed his mind exactly. We don't know why it was that point that he decided to think different about this. It might have been that he was touched. That when he came to give Jesus the kiss and to betray him, what did Jesus call him? You remember? His friend. I don't know if that was it or something else, but Judas goes to the chief priest in the temple and he says, I have sinned and I have betrayed innocent blood. And you know what they respond? They say, what's that to us? How'd you like those guys as your, as your priests or as your pastors? Right? You come to them and you say, I feel horrible. I have sinned. I have betrayed someone who is innocent. And they say, what do we care? That's your problem. You deal with it. And Judas takes the coins out of his pocket and he throws them into the temple and all 30 of them clank on the ground and then he runs. But he's got no place to go. Now, we don't know what happened to him at that time. We don't know exactly what happened next, but it was clearly for Judas a period of agony. He was exposed to the disciples as a traitor, to everyone else as a coward, and he knew that it was his fault that Jesus was going to be condemned. The weight of guilt and hopelessness that Judas felt was horrendous. And that guilt 
And that hopelessness is something that he embraced. He, he wallowed in it. And he made the worst choice imaginable. He committed suicide. Uh, Judas was the first of the disciples to die. What's so sad about this is that Judas was a real person. It's easy to think of him as kind of a caricature out of history. But he was a real guy. And he had a soul. And God loved Judas. And Jesus even called him his friend. So I want to stop for a minute. And I want to ask this question. Rather than judging Judas on Good Friday, which is an easy thing to do, I want to ask this question. Do you see any of yourself in him? Do you see any of yourself in Judas? Isn't it true that there is an amazing duplicity in all of us? Isn't it true that it's so easy to raise our hands or raise our hearts to God on Sunday and find ourselves in a totally different place by Monday? Isn't it so true that we can thank God for all that he's done and promise to live for him and then head a different direction and not do that at all? You know what sin is? Very simply, sin is betrayal. Sin is taking everything that God has done and given to us, and it's abandoning it. It's, it's going a different direction. And when our sin gets exposed, when people see that we are duplicit, and when we see it, don't we tend to do the same thing that Judas did? Don't we tend to run? Aren't we always tempted to choose, as he did, guilt, and death. I think there's a, at least a little bit of Judas in all of us. And that's part of what makes his story so important. I remember this uh, event that happened to me in life where I, I just got to see this firsthand. Um, when I went away to college, I went to a small Bible college in Philadelphia, just outside of Philly. And uh, as a freshman, I went in not knowing who my roommate would be. I, I went in blind and it turned out that I got a great roommate who I became close with very, very quickly. Uh, we became good friends. Uh, he had grown up in the Philippines. His parents were missionaries. And uh, as he told me about his life, I realized he lived a pretty wild life in the Philippines. And something had happened to him um, at the end of high school or, or just afterwards where he decided that he didn't want to live that kind of life anymore and that he wanted to live for God and, and know him better. And, and uh, so he decided to come to this Bible college, and he ended up being my roommate. Well, after the first semester, Christmas came along, and I went home to celebrate Christmas. I remember I took the train that year. He did not go anywhere because his parents were in the Philippines, and so he stayed at the school. And I got back after a couple of weeks, and uh, I, I, I knew, I just when I walked into my room, I knew something was different. And what was different was this roommate wasn't my friend anymore. He didn't want anything to do with me, and he wouldn't talk to me. And I remember asking him, what, you know, what's, what's going on? Is everything okay? And he, he literally wouldn't talk, and he wasn't around, and he'd come in really late, and I never saw him. And 
I came to find out that while I was gone, he had thrown a party in my dorm room. And this was a party that was about as wild of a party as you could imagine. And he had been caught. And he was in the process of going through discipline with the school administration over this. And it was very likely that he was going to get expelled for what he had done. And uh, I remember I went and I met with the person who was going to make this decision on whether or not he ought to be expelled. My roommate didn't know because we hadn't talked. And uh, I, I said, I tried to give a character you know, reference for this guy and ask them for grace. And what the person said to me was, they said, listen, we would really love to have grace with the guy, he said, but the problem is he shows no regret and he shows no repentance. He said, the only thing that he is is angry. And the thing about it was it was true. Uh, my roommate did get expelled, and the only time we ever talked about it was just before he left. He came up, and he gave me a huge hug, and he cried, and I cried. And his tears were like bitter tears. They were angry tears. And we gave each other gifts, and we said, thank you, you know, thank you for this great semester that we had together. And he was gone, and I never heard from him again. I don't know where he is to this day or what happened. And I think that what happened for this good guy was he felt like a failure. I mean, he just felt embarrassed and he felt condemned and he felt like he had no place that he could go. And all he wanted to do was to run. I mean, all he wanted to do was to leave. And it was almost as if that chapter, that semester in his life, he, he burned it. He wrote it off. He just moved on and tried to forget about it. And he went underground, never to be heard from again. What my roommate, I think, did was he embraced his guilt and he ran away. And when you and I fail, when our sin gets exposed and we see it and we feel guilty, it is so easy to do the same thing. It is so hard to face our sin. And what we want to do is we want to just put our head down and pretend it didn't happen, and move on, and forget it, and write it off, because we know that guilt, after a little while, starts to begin to go away. At least it, it seems to begin to go away. And when we see our guilt, it is easy, especially with God, to just try to go underground and hide. That's what Judas did. And I wish that the story of Judas ended different. I wish with all my heart it did. I know that he had to betray Jesus. Somebody had to betray Jesus. But what if, what if after all of this happened and Judas felt terrible and he threw those coins in the temple, what if he had gone and found Jesus? I know it might have been really hard to do because Jesus was in custody at the time. But if somehow he was able to just get close to him and say to Jesus, Jesus, I am so sorry, forgive me, please. What do you think Jesus would have done? And with everything you know about Jesus, wouldn't he have forgiven that man? The reason that we think that's true is not just because we want to think nice things about Jesus, but it's, a, it's because of everything that Jesus was about, especially at the cross. When Jesus was dragged away, he was arrested and he was beaten and he was spit on, and he was tortured. His clothing was stripped from him. He was naked, and his hands were tied to a post. 
and he was whipped mercilessly. They put a purple robe around him and a crown of thorns on his head and mocked him as if he was a king, not realizing he really was and is. And he was taken to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull outside the walls of Jerusalem. His hands and feet were nailed to the cross, and he was lifted up in the most shameful way possible. He was unrecognizable, the Bible said. You would not know that it was Jesus if you saw him because he was so bloodied and beaten. And while he was on the cross, just to breathe, it took incredible effort and caused him incredible pain. And even worse than just breathing would have been to speak. But when Jesus was on the cross, he said, Seven things altogether. He said seven short phrases. I think it was all that he could probably get across. As I wind down tonight, I just want to share with you three things that Jesus said. All seven of them were deeply meaningful and worth reflecting on. But I want to share with you three. First is this. Jesus on the cross said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Devin read that very sentence. It's from the opening words of Psalm chapter 22. And what Jesus was saying, what Jesus was feeling as he said those words was the agony of the cross. And what's so important to understand about the cross of Christ is that it was not just about physical pain, although the cross was the most painful death a person could imagine. But part of the agony of the cross for Jesus was that for the first time ever, the unthinkable happened, and that is God the Father turned his back on his Son. And that all of the wrath that God has against sin, all of his justice and righteousness was poured out in wrath directed towards Jesus on the cross. The Bible says God made him, that is Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us. And what that means is that God treated Jesus like our sin deserves. Imagine everything you've ever done wrong in your entire life being punished and multiply that by every person who has ever walked the earth. God punished that sin upon Jesus on the cross. And Jesus says, God, why have you forsaken me? That's one statement of Jesus. The second is just as powerful Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. In the darkest moment of Jesus' life, during the time of his worst possible agony, who was he thinking of? Us. And Jesus' desire during that place, on that cross, was that people would feel the forgiveness of God. You know what forgiveness is, basically? It's freedom. Forgiveness is not having to walk in guilt. Forgiveness is feeling no shame, no condemnation. Forgiveness is that you don't ever not have a place to go or a bridge that you need to burn behind you. Forgiveness is a place of peace and rest and joy and gratitude and hope. And that is what Jesus wants for you. That's what he wants you and me to experience. At our one o'clock service, there were a lot of kids in the service. I was kind of surprised 
by that. And when you're young, when you think of, do I need to be forgiven? You might just think of the day, right? I mean, the need for forgiveness just goes back so recently when you're a kid, and that's all that you can think of. But when you start to get a little older, what starts to happen is you have baggage in life, right? And when we run from our guilt, it's like we push it off and we push it off and we push it off and it doesn't get dealt with and it doesn't get dealt with and it doesn't get dealt with. And what Jesus said on the cross is, I want you free from all of that. I want you to be free. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. The place that Jesus wants you to be is forgiven, free, right And finally, at the cross, this is like the best three words he could say. These are words that every Christian should know that Jesus said. He says, it is finished. In other words, he says, the work that I've set out to do, that that angel said to Joseph about forgiving sins, it's done. Sin is conquered. It's destroyed. The path is now open and available that every person through the Son, can come to God, and that men and women can live forever with him. When Jesus said, it is finished, what that means is that your sins no longer need to condemn you. You don't need to run anymore. We can be free. And here's the saddest, the strangest, the most ironic truth about the story of Judas. And it's this. Judas' betrayal led to the event that could have set him free. Judas' betrayal led to the event that could have set him free. Judas' sin sent Jesus to the cross. And here's the thing. Ours did too. Ours did too. When Jesus died, he died for all of our sin. We were a part of it. But Judas chose guilt and death over life and forgiveness and freedom. And you and I here, even tonight, we get to make that same choice. What we do on, on Good Friday is that we remember that like Judas, all of us have betrayed God. His kiss is our kiss. But we also remember the cross. We remember that Jesus paid our debt, our great debt, so that we can be free. And on this day, our hearts should burst, should burst on Good Friday with sorrow and with joy and with love that the man that they mocked as king, he really was our king. Well, I want to invite you to stand, if you would, And I want to end with something that uh, is from the Puritans. I think what I'm about to read is very old. It's kind of part poem, part reflection, part prayer. And I thought if you'd like to close your eyes that I'd let you reflect on this tonight. Christ was all anguish that I might be all joy, cast off that I might be brought in, trodden down as an enemy that I might be welcomed as a friend, surrendered to hell's worst 
that I might attain heaven's best, stripped that I might be clothed, wounded that I might be healed, athirst that I might drink, tormented that I might be comforted, made a shame that I might inherit glory, entered darkness that I might have eternal life. My Savior wept that all tears might be wiped from my eyes, groaned that I might have endless song, endured all pain that I might have unfading health, bore a thorned crown that I might have a glory diadem, bowed his head that I might uplift mine, experienced reproach that I might receive welcome, closed his eyes in death that I might gaze on unclouded brightness, expired that I might forever live. Amen. Amen. 